1, 3 through 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Dear God, we come to you this morning and ask for your favor on your word as we hear it. God, I pray, Lord, that, um, that it would transform us, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of your word. God, I pray, Lord, um, that the things that, that um, we would talk about this morning would transform our lives, that your written word that you speak to us is a wonderful grace. God, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, yet you sought us out. You went to the ends of the earth to rescue us. And God, we thank you for this, Lord. When we had no right to that, um, you gave it to us anyway. And God, thank you for this um, morning where we get to reflect on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, um, we're continuing our study of the book uh, or the letter to first P- of First Peter. Um, and we've titled this letter, Life After Loss. First uh, Peter uh, deals with uh, amazing truths about our salvation in Christ, but specifically how these relate to our experiences in trial, um, how we are to continue in those trials and in hope. Uh, most of us, I think, have heard of C.S. Lewis. I've mentioned him before. But not many people know about C.S. Lewis that um, his wife... Um, became sick with cancer and battled with cancer for about four years and eventually uh, passed away um, from the cancer. And he wrote um, a journal at this time just kind of cataloging his emotions and fears, um, in particular after she had passed away, um, the kind of grief that he was experiencing. And that journal is actually in book form now that you can purchase and it's called The Grief Observed. It's very raw. It's not an exposition of scripture. It's not an articulation of why suffering biblically happens. Right? We can get those books too. And actually, he wrote one years prior 
um, to that uh, himself. But this was more a catalog of his emotions, of what he was feeling, what he was praying, uh, how he felt um, before God's presence. He says in A Grief Observed, No one ever told me that grief feels so much like fear. Interesting. He says, I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. It has the same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, a yawning, kind of an odd way to describe it. He says, I keep on swallowing. He describes his experience with grief as fear, needing to swallow, and a forgetfulness. When we grieve, we tend, I think, to be afraid of forgetting. Uh, Forgetting a love that we had, forgetting the sound of a voice, forgetting some kind of joy of mutual passions like fishing or poetry or something like this. Grief feels like fear, and we know it's not the same. It's hard to describe why, but I know what he's talking about when he says it feels like fear. That deep loss has a fear-like quality. It struck me when I was reading this book, A Grief Observed, that he's like, I I kept on, I keep on swallowing. He's describing like this physical kind of action. And I know what he means because grief and tragedy has this way for us that time just sort of stops. And people are there, but they're not there. You tend to gulp. When the unthinkable happens, uh, the unimaginable these are our experiences, and I think that if you've gone through anything like this to this level, you'll know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> People are around us. They're there, but they're not there. He, um, he also mentioned, when, when I went through times, he says, of extreme grief, I wanted to be around people, but I didn't want them to speak to me. <laughs> I wanted them to speak to each other. And that's what I mean when you read this. It's like, wow, yeah, that's, he's just really describing well, I think, what happens to us emotionally when we go through these things. I wanted to be around people, but I just didn't want them to pay attention to me <laughs> too much. <clears throat> I know what he's saying, this, this swallowing, this solitude in the presence of others. This morning, we just read a, a piece of scripture that... that For this person, this person that's going through this sort of immense kind of trial and suffering internally, it seems foolishly optimistic when you read this. How can a suffering soul know hope and praise and joy, new birth? This is the language of the text we just read. Salvation, faith, rejoicing. How on earth? Can people who write in our text suffered grief in all kinds of trial? That's what Peter, that's who Peter is addressing. You who have suffered grief in all kinds of trial. <clears throat> he seems sort of like disconnected, doesn't he, to the problem of pain, the real world of emotional suffering. And Lewis even seems to contradict what we just read in Peter. He says this, Meanwhile, in my grief, where's God? When When you are happy, he says, so happy that you turn to him with gratitude and praise, you'll be welcomed with open arms. He's talking about God. God is going to embrace you because you're just so so in love and so happy. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door 
slammed in your face. A sound of bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. There's no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited, he says? It seems so once. Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in a time of trouble? You see, these are the memoirs of a suffering man who's grappling and wrestling with his own pain. I'm sure perhaps many of us in this room have felt this sort of grief at some point in our lives. I know I have. It's nearly impossible, I think, to understand how any of us can find any sort of hope and faith when we suffer this way, these sorts of griefs and all kinds of trials. But here, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he's talking to grievers. He's talking to people who are suffering all kinds of trials. It's the joyous reprieve of the suffering. It gives us a window into life after pain. Life after loss. It's, it's, in chapter 1, we see this. And I think what, what Peter's trying to do here is to work the ground. Let me explain to you what I mean. He's providing the basic materials that we need for rejoicing, for real hope. Not just in the good times, but in the bad times too. Not long ago, I was uh, fi- visiting my father. He's here, right? There you go. There's that handsome guy over there. I was visiting my father and my stepmom, that beautiful lady on the side of him, um, in their home in Fairhaven. You guys know where Fairhaven is. It's going to be on the map in a second. If, there we go. In case you don't know. It's, oh, that's really small. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's right near New Bedford, right? You see, this is where we are. Where are we? We're here. You see that? That's Warren. That's New Bedford. Fairhaven's across this little thing of land right there. So that's where Fairhaven. You guys have ever been to Fairhaven? Yeah, Fairhaven's beautiful. It's really nice. He doesn't just live in Fairhaven, though. Um, He lives right there in Fairhaven. (laughs) You see that? So, you know, Fairhaven's like all of this. And he lives as almost in the water on a boat. That's where my father lives. <clears throat> now, you drive around this, this little peninsula for a while. You, you'll know when you enter it because you're going to start seeing houses like this. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's ridiculous, right? How many people have a house like that? No one would ever build a house like that unless, go back to the other screen, unless you live there. <laughs> then you build a house like that and if you have a million dollars, too. So, so that's where my father lives. And you go back to that house again there. Um, that's where my father lives in this, you know, near, that's not his house. But he, he lives near a lot of house, ridiculous looking houses like this. These huge cement columns lifting this strange looking house. Every, if you kind of do this, it looks normal, right? <laughs> you know, like I'm, cr- I'm crushing your head, right? If you kind of do that, it looks normal, right? But you take that away, like, whoa, what's going on here? Has he got a clipper ship that he puts under there or something? What's that for? Why is that? If you're from the desert or, you know, you've never lived around the ocean, you don't know what a, what a hurricane is, you don't know what a nor'easter is, that would seem really odd to you. So if you're not familiar with New England and with New England weather or what the possibilities are of living right on the ocean like that, 
that would make no sense. You'd look at that and think, this is really strange. Why is this person building his house? Maybe he wants, maybe someone, you know, there was a house in front of him, and he wanted to see the ocean. So he just, maybe that's why he built the house. Or maybe, the, like, people who own Hummers, they have a superiority complex, right? They want to be above everyone else, and they want to look down at the lady in the Dunkin' Donuts window. So maybe that's why. Maybe he just, you know... Makes, makes way too much money, but he's very insecure because his parents left him or something when he was a kid. So he had to live above everybody. If you are from this area, you know that that's not the case. This house is ready. This house is prepared. It knows what's coming, and it knows how to handle it. It, may, it might look silly to us. It might seem bizarre to us if we don't know the weather patterns around here, but if we do know the weather patterns around here, we know, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. That house is safe. It's ready. It's secure. I want to suggest to you, friends, that part of what it looks like to be a Christian to others is sort of bizarre, just like this. We sort of look strange a little to the outside world. But we know something about life and about the life to come that, some, that other people don't know. We'll learn this more in a moment. And it's not because we're better than, than them or smarter than them. It's because it was God's gift of grace to us. But he has shown us what we need to be safe when storms come. He's shown us what we need. And if you're a Christian, you're going to apply that to your life and everyone around you is going to think that you're a house on stilts. And you look a little strange. And why are you doing things? Why are you living your life like that? You see... Peter is not so much describing the emotional condition for the Christian who goes through crisis. We experience sorrow and grief and even anger when we go through these points of confusion. We experience that too. He's not doing that. He's working the ground. He's laying the cornerstones. He's establishing the heart. He's making sure that we have the equipment that we need to hold on, to hang on when life gets tough. It's not so that we can be happy when bad things happen to us. Let me just suggest to you something very simple. You will not be happy when something tragic happens in your life. And that does not mean there is something wrong with your spirituality. You were made to grieve. Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. He, he sweat drops of blood before the crucifixion. He was scared. He wanted another way. You see, these are emotions, human emotions, that aren't signs of immaturity um, or a lack of spiritual faith, but they're natural to the consequences of grief and suffering. But what, what is happening here is Peter's laying a foundation to give us life through it, to help us hold on. <clears throat> The storms rage around us too, right? It doesn't mean that storms don't happen to us. It's hard and heavy when these things happen to us. Hurricanes hit that house too, and the people inside it are just as scared as you are. It doesn't matter that they're on weird stilts. Because storms are tragic. But the house stands on, right? The house continues. And friends, I want to equip you with Peter this morning how to continue how to understand that when the hurricane comes, what's our columns? 
what are our cornerstones? What holds us up? What do we need to meditate on and reflect on? What do we need to be building right now in our life, getting ready for that storm? So our text in this sermon is not suggesting that if you have endured tragedy or perhaps will endure tragedy, that you're going to feel joy in it or peace in it. It's rather an equipping us with what we'll need to know so that we can get on the other side of it through that loss. You see what I mean? So that we can travel through it and that it won't just kill us or cripple us. Last week we saw God as the believer. If you remember, God was the believer's father and he supplied us for, supplies us with our greatest needs, love, safety, and purpose. In God our Father, we are loved more than we ever dreamed. We are safer than we ever imagined, and our lives are given purpose. We don't get that in our work. We don't get love primarily from our spouse. We don't get, we, we, we don't get safety from a large bank account. God the Father, who loves us, um, give, promises us, pledges us his paternal love, keeps us safe, and gives us purpose. All of those needs you have and are fulfilled by God in heaven. But Peter now begins to praise God for that position, that he's the son of God and that he gets all of those things. He starts to to praise God and describe further the blessing of what it means to be a child of God. And friends, what he's doing is he's setting up these columns. He's telling the church that he's speaking to, you're going through all kinds of grief, but remember the columns. Remember what carries you through. Remember that there's life on the other side of this suffering. So he starts to praise God for this position and for this blessing. The blessings are so great and so important, though we might not ever understand why we lost something, we can still pass through that suffering in all kinds of trial. Though we might never understand the purpose of it, we can pass through it. We can hold on by faith though we have not seen him. Isn't that wonderful just um, description of this church? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, I'm not trying to sound proud of myself or any of you because I know that this is a grace, grace of God, but when I hear those words, it, it almost gives my heart a certain delight because that's me. That's you. I've never seen him, but I really do love him. You know, sometimes I really feel like a bum. Can you... Get an amen with me. I feel like a failure. I feel like my life is going nowhere. My emotions can sometimes completely take over. But then I hear that. Though you have not seen him and you love him, I'm like, wow, I got something. I got something going for me. And so do you if you're a believer in Christ. You have not seen him, but you love him. You have not touched him, but you felt him. Isn't that fantastic? So we hold on by faith to Christ, though we have not seen him. The storms happening, the lightnings and the winds are crashing around us in the houses too. It's no less dramatic or no less frightening for us, or no less tragic even. The, the accompanying loss that we experience in these times of difficulty are just as emotionally heavy. But we stand. And we stand not on our two legs, but on the columns of the gospel. The gospel is our true north, 
not our bank account. The gospel is Noah's Ark. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is our land of Goshen. You remember the land of Goshen? Moses, let my people go. The children of Israel are all enslaved. God's going to bring um, judgment on you. A judgment comes. And where does Israel go for safety? No, none of the plagues touch the land of Goshen. The gospel is our land of Goshen, friends. The gospel is Noah's Ark for us. Our house stands. We might ter- be terrified inside. We might be hiding under the bed in that, in that house. But we're safe. You are objectively project- protected in spite of how you might feel. Isn't that true? There's another story in the Old Testament of the last plague of Egypt where um, the, the angel of death comes over the land of Egypt and the first child that does not have, if they don't have the blood over the doorposts and the sides, the angel of death takes the life of the firstborn child. But if you have the blood, you're protected. I heard it once said that, you know, you could have been in the, the house with the blood on it and you could have been safe as, as any other day, but terrified on the inside. It doesn't matter. Your safety is not affected by how you feel. And even that should give us some relief in our anxiety, shouldn't it? That in spite of how afraid I am right now, it doesn't matter because it's not me who protects me. It's God. Amen? The house stands. The gospel is our true north. It's our Noah's Ark. The foundation, God's blessing, is demonstrated in our text in three ways. We get three pillars, past, present, and future, okay? A fixed future, a grounded present, and a past work, all based on a past work. A fixed future, a grounded um, present, and a past work. So let's look at this. The first thing I want to look at is a fixed future. It says in verse 3, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why has he done that? Why has he given us a new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Into, verse 4, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation for that inheritance that is ready to be revealed at the last time. There is a fixed future for anyone who has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and nothing can change that. It will never perish, it will never spoil, and it will never fade. How many people have ever left food in the fridge for a little bit too long? It seems like it grows a city in there, right? We leave food out too long, and it perishes. It spoils. I remember um, there was this church that I used to go to. It was a pretty big church, and we got, um, when we first started, um, that church got sold, and um, um, it was purchased by um, the YMCA, and the YMCA was trying to get rid of all the church chairs, Right? So I was like, well, we're a new church. I need church chairs. You guys remember this? We had these maroon chairs. They were 50 shades of maroon right? because they faded in the sun. They had, there was a lot of windows in the chapel, and the sun just faded all the, depending on where the chair was. It was like a rainbow of maroon in here because they were all faded. Things fade in the sun, right? We know this. But our inheritance does not perish. It does not spoil, and it does not fade, friends. 
It is being prepared for you by Christ. John, right, I believe it's chapter 14. I go and I prepare a place for you. If this were not so, I would not have told you. I am coming again, and where I am, you will be with me also. Doesn't it say that? Isn't that the promise for us? That there is an inheritance? It's not a big pile of money. Jesus isn't waiting for us with a hundred virgins or lots of dough or a big house. It's him. He's the inheritance. The inheritance is forgiven sin. The inheritance is perfect, complete love and joy with your maker forever. That's the inheritance. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, no more divorce. Jesus Christ is married to you in perfect love and harmony forever. That's your inheritance, friends. So we lose a lot in life, don't we? Oh, we sure do. And it's hard. But friends, there's a better inheritance waiting for us that cannot be taken away from us. It doesn't die. It doesn't change its mind. You see, our husbands and our wives, some of them, they changed their mind about us, didn't they? They, <laughs> they said, I'll love you. To death do I part. Do we part. In good times and in bad. And then, like, times not only are they not bad, they're just kind of a little less than good, and they're gone. Well, what happens? We, well, well, I'll tell you what happened. We change. We're sinners that change. But God's word is fixed and firm, and his love is established for you. And he does not change. The Bible says he holds the oceans of the world in the hollow of his hands. He measures the mountains on his scales. His word is lasting and permanent. And what God has said to, to rescue you, to prepare an inheritance for you, it's coming, friends. For a little while, we do suffer all kinds of grief, but in a little while, we'll get him. We get Christ. It ends. He dries our tears and we live for, forever with, isn't that fantastic? Come on, friends. That's fantastic. Yay. There you go. That was a weak applause. <laughs> Next time. Thank you. God has granted to every repented sinner a fixed future, an inheritance acquired by his free grace. He doesn't make you pay for it. He doesn't make you spin around for it. You're not coming to church for it. Jesus died for it. It is finished. He has done it. Let your weary heart rejoice. He's done it by his free grace and he grants it to us through his new birth. Ephesians chapter 2. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Isn't that true? Anyone who's a Christian, if you're a Christian here, you know exactly what that's talking about. Yep. Once I was dead because of my disobedience and my many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But God, so rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead long ago with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us all in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, read your Bibles. I, I say that to myself. I need to read my Bible. I am much too grumpy. 
I am much too disappointed at times with how my life has turned out or where it might be going. And I forget that, that pillar. But God, so rich in mercy, loved us so much that even we were, though we were dead in our sins, gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. I'll be raised from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. An undeserving dead sinner is given life and sat with him in heaven as his bride. Come on, friends. For he raised us from the dead long ago with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms, and we are united to Jesus. So God can point to us all. He can point to you in all future ages. That's us. So, God gets, so, so Paul's writing to a church in Ephesus, but he, does, he says he can point to you, but also everyone in all future ages. That's me and you. That's Kyle and Wally. That's John and Rita, right? Amen? That's you. He can point to us all in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. That's your life described in Christ. Incredibly wealthy. Incredibly gracious. We have the objects of his kindness. Wow. This, how is this shown to us? Not because he got us out of a jam, right? Not because he gave us a new job with a high salary. How does he show this kindness toward us? In all that he's done for us who are united with Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. The inheritance reserved for you is not a reward because you're really good looking. Right? You work out hard. And boy, are you skinny. Right? You work harder than everyone else around you. You make lots of money. I'm really moral, too. I'm loyal to my wife. I'm not the guy that changed and turn on his vows. Oh, friends, we are the ones that changed. We are the ones that left our wives and our husbands. We are the ones that betrayed our good God, but we are objects of his grace, saved by his good pleasure, undeserving of anything from him and given everything. Isn't that fantastic? And what does that do for us? Well, well, let's, let's see. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Jesus so that we can do the things he planned for us long ago. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. We're great sinners. We are not condemned, saved by his free grace so that we can go and sin no more. Amen? That's, that's probably, that's the New Living Translation, by the way. You might have not heard it like that before. It's fantastic. But that's probably the most articulate explanation in Scripture that the inheritance promised to us, to God's people, is not acquired by being a good boy and keeping our noses clean, by earning it. It's God's gift. That's the cornerstone that can be counted on because if our houses were founded on our own ability to perform, then our safety would not be sure. But second, 
Our future inheritance is not only acquired by free grace, but through the new birth. Being, we've heard this language before, born again. You see, that's kind of like, if you're not a Christian, what are you talking about? That strange Nicodemus in John chapter 3 was a very educated religious Jew who didn't know what Jesus was talking about with that language, you see? So Jesus wasn't so seeker-friendly. He still used the word. (laughs) It's okay. We just need to explain it, and Jesus did explain it. Other places in the Bible call this new birth regeneration or being born again. The free inheritance reserved in heaven for us is only promised to those God gives new life to. It's not a gift to everyone on earth for all time. It's a gift to those that God has awakened dead people to life. Ephesians 2, you were once dead because of disobedience, but now you believe and you have life. You see, you see. The free inheritance is only promised to those God gives new life to. That means you have to come to faith in Christ to have this secure hope. It is not yours if you don't. You have to turn from your sin and look to Christ. We'll see that in a moment. The free inheritance is only promised to to these. Jesus told the Pharisee, remember in John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to a religious leader. I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, You cannot, you will not see the kingdom of God. Not everyone goes there. Not everyone enters there. You must be born again. The inheritance fixed and reserved are for those who are born again. So friends, I entreat you, I beg you, I implore you, believe in Christ. Put your confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Confess his holy name. Don't confess your own. You know, birth is not something you can will, right? I didn't decide to, you know, be conceived. It was something that was put on me, given to me. Birth is not something I can will. To be born again, it requires, even my physical birth, requires a supernatural act of God that results in something tangible. So in other words, my birth was supernatural. It was not my choice. It was someone else's choice. But there is a tangible, tangible result. And you know what that tangible result is? Me. Right? So when God, gave, when God supernaturally gave me life, I'm the result of it. Kyle DeGagney standing in front of you. So to be born again requires a supernatural act of God that results in something tangible. And the Christian living out their faith and love for Christ, that's the tangible result. That's the born-again life. That's the eyes that you get to see. That's the metaphor over and over again for this that we see in Scripture. The blind receive sight. The deaf are given ears to hear. The dead are given life. I was once dead in my trespasses and sins. I did not believe, nor would I believe, except for the moving and the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Believing in Christ for salvation does not cause me to be born again. Being born again causes me to believe in Jesus Christ. It's a supernatural gift. And that's why, and Paul said in Ephesians, you can't even boast about your faith because your faith you would not have had unless you were made alive. The fruits of which this born-again life are obvious, faith and good works. To be born again implies that you see something that you didn't before, right? If you're born, that means you didn't have life prior. Now you have life. 
So you see something as a born-again person that you didn't see before. And the first thing that you realize when, when God gives you new life, and this is a tough one, but the first thing that you realize is that all your life you have believed a lie. And you have, commu- and you have carried on that lie. You have believed a lie your whole life. That's what it means to be born again. You realize for the first time that your whole life you have been wrong. The life prior, the first birth, this is the lie. That life apart from Jesus is sufficient. I'm good enough. I'm fine. If bad things happen, it's just because I made bad choices. I'll just start making good ones. Life will go well for me. You see, that's what we say. The problem with the world, friends, is not God. It's not even sin and suffering. This is the truth that comes to us. You see, before, when we lived in this lie, we blamed God for everything. We thought somehow he must be unkind, unfair, or unjust, if he is even there at all. But when we come to the reality of things, when we come to new life, when we're given eyes that see, we realize this is not God's fault at all. This is mine. This is sin. God is innocent. God is righteous and good and holy. Created us for a loving relationship with him. And I, and I wanted anything but him. And I turned from him. That's the problem. That's what we see. That's what we're given eyes to see for the first time. It's me. It's us. It's not, God is not the problem. Psalm chapter 120. I took my troubles to the Lord. I cried out to him and he answered me. Rescue me, O Lord, from liars and from all deceitful people. Now, that might, that might sound like some harsh words, but friends, that's the reality that we've lived in. We've lived in a lie, in a deceitful worldview that has taught something to us that has been incorrect. Life begins when we recognize that the old life was a lie. I'm not that bad. Work hard, be honest, be good, don't cheat. Things will turn out good for you. These are our virtues and vows. This is what we think about life. Suffering in the world, you know, God could have done something about it, but he didn't. He's kind of a jerk, right? Just make good choices. Things will turn around for you. And by the way, also, if I'm relatively safe, if I have someone to love, and I have some kind of purpose for my life, this is Immanuel Kant, by the way, then I can be happy. That's what he said. Someone to love, something to do, and there was a third one. I forgot what it is. Someone to love, something to, something to do, and number three. <laughs> I'll, I'll say safety, love, and purpose, like we said last week. We, got, we get those things from the world, we'll be relatively happy. And how many people know that's a lie? We get someone to love, and we end up hating them. You want, why do you hate them? Why do you end up hating them? Because you thought they would satisfy your every need, and they didn't. And now they're ugly to you. Now they get in your way. You see, only can we find satisfaction for our restless souls in Jesus Christ and our creator and maker. The fruit of seeing eyes is that we see we, that we've been without God, that that's not his fault, it's ours, and that because of his love, in spite of these things, he has provided a rescue, a reconciliation with himself, a salvation. 
He pays for our sin, brings us back to him, gives us eyes to see it, and sets us on course for an eternally secure inheritance. Praise God. Amen. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Not many people know that verse. They know the second one, the one after it. For, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. Verses 14 and 15, right before it, let me remind you again. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will not have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have an inheritance, have have eternal life. In the Old Testament, you know that the children of Israel didn't always get it. Did you know that? Not like us. We get it all the time. They didn't get it. So they decide, you know, this isn't working. We want the leaks of Egypt. We're going to go back to Egypt. Moses, you're a bum. So God decides, oh, yeah, Moses is my man. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send snakes. They're going to bite you all. And the ground is going to open up. And they're going to swallow everyone except for Moses and his family. Right? Kind of tough. Okay? But bear with me. This is what happens. Moses intercedes. And um, pleads for them, like Christ intercedes for us. We deserve God's punishment because of sin, yet Christ intercedes. So this is what happens in this story. God says, okay, get a snake, wrap it around a pole, erect it in front of the children of Israel, and whoever looks on the snake will be cured of their disease. They'll be saved. Right? You see what's going on here? Jesus is saying, this is what your salvation is like. For God, like this, for God, oftentimes we read this verse, for God so loved the world. He loved you so much, like quantitatively. But the word so doesn't mean that here. It means like this. God loved you in the same manner as this. The same, so what's the same manner? Like the, like the stick. Being born again means that we've looked to Jesus. We've recognized the sting of sin, the separation that it's caused between us and God. We don't go to church more. We don't pray more to erase the bad things we've done. We look to Jesus. We look to the man on the tree. You see, God loved you like this. That if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. You see, he died for you in your place. That's what it means to be born again, friend. That's what you see. I should be dead on the stick. But Jesus was for me. He took the angry wrath of God for me in my place. All I got to do is trust him, and my sins get paid for, and I get his life. That's, That's salvation, friends. This is how God loved the world. Yes, quantitatively, so much. But he loved the world like this, to look to Christ, to see him dying in our place and assuring us of an eternal inheritance, the kingdom of God, eternal life. That's what it means to be born again, friends. The gift, the free gift, the new birth, assures us of the life to come. Death is not the end. Your tragedies 
your losses are not the end of you. They are not. Because there is a life promised to you because of what Jesus did, a life to come, a life that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. You know, our uh, um, people fail us. You know that, right? Dreams fail us. They don't work out. Success is deceiving, isn't it? You, you accomplish it sometimes, and it just wasn't what you imagined. Relationships end. But the inheritance won for us by Jesus, applied to us by this new birth, cannot be taken by the enemy. It's shielded by the power of God. That's what Peter says in chapter 1. Shielded by the power of God, not by your scrawny arms or mine. These arms can't stop much. Maybe 10 years ago they could, but now they can't. It's not going to spoil like some soggy apple or like those garments laid in the sun. The lie of the old life is that things we possessed or even needed, we believed those things wouldn't spoil. We believed those things wouldn't disappoint or fade, but they did. When you come to Christ, you realize that your inheritance, Jesus, is kept for you. You get it. You win. You win. You think you've lost because of something that's happened in your life. Friend, it is a loss, and it should grieve your heart. But in the end, in Christ, you win. You win. And it will be revealed in the last time that you have won. This makes, number two, our presence grounded. This is verses 6 through 9. Grief is real, and suffering is real. Sometimes they last a long time. But our presence is grounded. In all this, greatly rejoice, Peter says, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy." The way in which we go through the trial that we go through, the losses and griefs of life, is to believe in Jesus, to love Jesus. What, What happens on the other side of this is a glorious, inexpressible joy. You see, friends, the columns are being built under your house. You realize what's in store for you. You love Jesus, though you have not seen him, and you are filled with an... There have been times in my life where there was no earthly reason that I should be happy, but I, I might have been the happiest person on earth. I can't explain it, except that Jesus is alive, and that he loves me and I love him, and my inheritance is secure in Christ. The only way I can explain it. In that moment of joy, I actually really believed that. And it, it over... It, it, It superseded all the other pains of my life. It overshadowed them all. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't go through grief and anger and confusion during times of trial. It does mean, though, that when our faith starts to emerge through the clouds of this, that joy starts to shine through. We, despite our tragedies, begin to faith in God. Begin to believe him. 1 John 5, 4, you know what this says in the New Testament? This is the victory that has overcome even our faith. I believe. In spite of the waters passing through under my house, I believe. I believe that God is coming. 
that his inheritance is promised and that he'll deliver me to the other side. That's what's more precious than gold. You can't buy that with money. Even though you don't see him with your eyes, you love him and you believe in him and are filled with inexplainable, unexplainable and inexpressible joy. So this is a journey, isn't it? It's a process. The griever doesn't just kind of skip through tragedy. It's just the opposite. A lot of times we, we crawl through darkness, don't we? But, but, but we believe in God's promise. And it gets us through. It helps us to crawl the next knee, whatever. The joy that comes from faith tested by fire is not faith in abstract. It's based on proof. We believe in something real and something actual, not something we just kind of hope will happen. Our faith is grounded, number three, in a past work. This is our, our other pillar. We can have a grounded present and a fixed future because of a past work that's completed in Christ. Someone's, someone once said, I love this, that the gospel is not advice, it's news. Right? Advi- uh, religion is advice. Do this, don't do that, things will go well for you. You'll be okay. You'll turn out on the other side in this life and the next. That's religion. It's advice. Follow these things, your marriage will be better. That's advice. All religions are advice, but the gospel, Christianity, is news. It's a proclamation of an event that has happened in the past for us on our behalf. That's the gospel. It's news. The gospel makes Jesus the captain. Religious, religions, I'm the captain. But the gospel is news. It takes the workers' tools off us, the gloves off us, and gives them to Jesus Christ. Concerning this salvation in our text, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time, that past event, for them was future, but for us it's past, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which Jesus, the Spirit of Christ in them, was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah. The prophets of old were laboring to know when Christ would come the sufferings of Christ, when he would die for sinners. Now this is a past event for us. When he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. The glory, that's the inheritance, right? It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. He's saying this, the gospel... Was, was wanting to be known by the prophets of old. The gospel has happened in Christ in a past event now, and now preachers have come to you after the fact and told you about that past event. That's what's happening here in this verse. And it's described as glorious. There is a glorious hope in all this because of this. The angels even bend their necks in heaven, it says, to look at these things. They wonder in awe at the work of Christ, the redemption. He saved you. He saved us by grace through faith. We don't all just die. We're rescued. We're married to Christ in the end. This event in the past is what gives us life in the present, and it's our living hope for the future. It's what equips the believer to endure all sorts of grief and trial. We are not hoping that one day we end up in heaven. It's promised to us because of what Jesus did for us in the past. It is finished. He has done it. Let your weary heart rejoice. Our redemption is accomplished. 
Right? Amen? The prophets in the past longed to see the sufferings of Christ. What was future for them is now news to us and the glories that follow. The word of God promised the coming of Christ. This wasn't just wishful thinking or hoping. It was promised by God, recorded to us in his word, and these promises now come to us as news. That suffering and grief will end and that Jesus Christ will give us his life and the life to come. Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to this. Gosh, we could talk about this for weeks. But our high priest, that's Jesus, offered himself to God a sacrifice for sin by dying on the cross. And this was good for all time. He doesn't need to do it again. Right? Like This wasn't good for the first 10 years, the next 10 years, and then he would have to come back. He didn't bring us halfway. Right? And we got to go the other half. He did it all. It was good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. For by that one offering he has made holy those who are being made perfect. That means he does it. He secures it. He accomplishes it. And we're along for the ride. Can you delight in this, friend? It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those, preached, by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. God, Friends, this is saying that God himself is speaking to you through me right now. Let me read it again. It has... It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel. You see, the prophets were waiting for this and now you all are hearing it from a preacher, me, this day. You get the news. It's given to you. God himself is speaking to you right now through a preacher, maybe not the best one, Maybe the best looking one, but not the, the most articulate. Your, pre, your present, friends, is directed by God's love and life. All of it is directed by God's love and life. Your future home, your inheritance, is assured by his promise and by his grace through new birth and faith in Jesus. You see, let's go back to that house again. All of this, the reason we have a, a fixed hope in the future the reason we can have a rejoicing heart in the present is because of the past news of Jesus Christ. So our past, our present, and our future is all sanctified and redeemed because of the cross. You see, those are your legs. Those are what you need to be reminded of when life is hardest. Because you won't make it if you don't. You need to remember what Jesus has done. So here I am, right now, because God put me here. And he put you here, you there in those seats. And he put you there to hear the good news. To hear what the prophets long to see, what angels bend their necks to observe. You're hearing it right now in your ears. And I pray that they can hear it. And that your ears have life. That your eyes have sight. Come to Christ and believe him. You say, I already believe him. Well, maybe you need to renew your faith. Maybe you've forgotten. 
Maybe you've forgotten about those pillars below you. And you started to think that your house was in the sand. Friends, it's not. Remember what Jesus is, Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done. And I think that's the light that can shine after the darkness and after the clouds lift. Amen? Let's pray.